you know, I'm working with a newcomer now. We were giving out chips. He's at 30 days. I was doing the chips and I picked up at 30 days and I was like, wow, 30 days. That went by fast. And he looked at me and he's like, for you, <laughs> longest 30 days of my life. So true. <laughs> I heard it through the grapevine. Welcome. It's the AA Grapevine Half Hour Variety Hour, featuring the collected voices of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm Don, an alcoholic in Greensboro, North Carolina. Hey, Don. Hey, everybody. I'm Sam, an alcoholic in Palm Springs, California. Sam, I think the technical term for what I experienced when I quit drinking is time dilation. Time turned to sludge. Ooh, wibbly wobbly, tiny whiny stuff. Who said that? The doctor. Oh. When I came in, they said, you've got to take it one day at a time. Okay, but every hour seemed like a day. What am I going to do with all these vile hours, you know? Hug them and squeeze them <laughs> and call them George. Is that Doctor Who? No, that's Saturday morning cartoons. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you know, yeah, it's, it's like, you know, when Saturday morning cartoons, when you're little, the Saturday was really long. It was forever. And then, you know, I got older and Saturdays fly by. Well, when I quit drinking, every day was like so long. I hear you. And it, was, it wasn't just that I was craving. It was just, it seemed like time itself got longer. What do I do with me? When I was drinking, it was just kind of like, this is a great way to pass the time. And now when I got sober, I'm like, I don't know, where did all this time come from? I don't know what to do with all of this. Yeah. Now, one of the things that helped me immensely was getting a routine. It's like, go to work, come home, change clothes, go to a meeting. But then you threw in a holiday or a long weekend or something like that. And I'm like, now I don't know what to do with me. I've got even more time on my hands. Yeah. Yeah. Well, time to go to more meetings. I mean, that really helped. Going to a meeting, it seemed like I could relax a lot better. But when I quit drinking, I didn't realize just how pervasive alcohol was in my thinking and in my schedule and in my in my being. Mm -hmm. And that you take that away. And that's where all that time came from. So tell me, though, in your experience, did you find that you started running out of time again? After a while. Now, yeah, it took, it took a while, but my life filled up and it got full of stuff that wasn't alcohol, but life, I didn't have enough time anymore at, yeah. sometimes. That time dilation thing goes away <laughs> after a while, but at first it's very real. Yeah, it is. It's kind of nice. I got a lot more time. I got a much cleaner house when I quit drinking. <laughs> my house, you know, I still need the threat of company coming over for it to get clean, but there's, <laughs> well, Don, today our interview will be with Scott R. And then we'll conclude with a uh, blast from the past from 1948 as our co-founder Bill W. tells about the creation of Rule 62. Don, do you know what Rule 62 is? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Shall we say ego deflation at depth? <laughs> Perhaps with a depth charge. <laughs> well, if you don't know what Rule 62 is, you'll have to listen all the way to the end to find out. But first, let's meet Scott.
I am Scott and uh, I'm an alcoholic. My home group is the South Riding Group in South Riding, Virginia. My sobriety date is July 21st, 2015. Hey Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Scott, what happened to you that made you decide that you had to give it up and do the most drastic thing, which is go to AA? At least that's the way it felt to me. <laughs> My story in a nutshell was I honestly think from the first time I drank, I was an alcoholic because I got drunk at my brother's keg party. I was 14 or 15 and my dad had to carry me upstairs to the uh, uh, bathtub so I wouldn't you know, pee all over myself. And that kind of sums up the next 25 plus years of my drinking career. It was mainly just partying, high school, drugs are part of my story too. You know, when you read the first step in the book book, you talk about these alcoholics that still have their jobs and their families and two cars in the garage. That was me, but it was a house of cards that I had built because everything was starting to collapse. I was in a blackout with my boss on a call. Oh, wow. And I didn't even know it until after I'd gone to my first meeting, decided to show up, he confronted me. My wife was just extremely worried. I had a one-year-old and a four-year-old at the time. She was making plans that didn't include me. Also, my health was deteriorating fast. Relationships were falling apart. What happened to me was my son was in um, preschool and then there was a local church that had it that had my wife was just drawn to. And, um, you know, she said, hey, if we're going to send our, our son to preschool here, we should probably see what the congregation's like. And I was, of course, like, you know, Mr. Spiritual at the time. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll lead this. But um, I was, you know, falling to pieces and I just heard those words I needed to on that day. It was pretty kind of cliche. I actually had the the program guide for the service with one of the alcohol pamphlets inside that I was reading kind of closed up because I was ashamed. Oh. And then the, 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 ser the sermon was on, uh, you know, the, the parable of the lost sheep. And that was me that day. I decided the next day that I was going to go to a meeting. I uh, didn't get sober right away, but, I, you know, I kept hearing this thing. There are no half measures. You know, about two weeks in, I had that vital spiritual experience. And then got a sponsor, dove headfirst into the program and tried to stay there ever since. So you had heard of AA beforehand and had a pamphlet? Yeah. How did that pamphlet come into this story? <laughs> yeah, the, the pamphlet was actually at the church. You know, you, you see all these things that you think nobody reads. I didn't want to go that day. I, I had a just a horrible blackout the weekend before. I drank the night before. And my wife looked at me and she said, we're going, we're going. And I said, okay. You know, I knew at that point in time that um, I had to be there. I, I picked up just one of those pamphlets and uh, was reading it. My uncle is uh, about 36 years sober in the program. Uh, so you knew of it. Yeah, I knew of him. Uh, turns out he's my godfather. He was one of the first people I called, but I knew that that had worked for him, but it was mainly, I call it divine intervention or a series of... Uh, well, was there a, a meeting at that church? Well, for that particular church, which is actually still my church, there was a, a meeting on Thursdays. It was a, a local church. I'd just gone online and I, I, I picked the closest meeting on the very next day and decided I would go to that one. And that ended up being my home group. And I was there this morning and, you know, it was really the, you know, the, the being at the bottom, the surrender, hearing the, those words that were just that little bit of nudge to, to push me over the edge. So you hadn't lost your driver's license, your family, your wife. This is the position I was in when I came into A. I had all those things, but I had a spiritual bottom that where I I crashed, and I realized that 
this drinking has completely taken over my life. I'm going to have to, oh no, go to AA because I'd heard of AA and I knew that what that was about was about not drinking. And I'm going to have to do it because I'm destroying my life. Were you in that position or what was the pressure on you to give up? You know, know, my wife was extremely concerned, but it was very similar to your story, just spiritual bankruptcy, emotional bankruptcy. You know, I'd been in a dark place for a while, but it was an isolated place. Like even when I got sober and I was telling my family members about what I did, they said we had no idea it was that bad. Mm -hmm. You know, it was um, really me and just sick and tired of being sick and tired and doing it for me. Right. I didn't get an ultimatum. I basically, you know, I remember a week or so before that, I got down on my hands and knees and then just prayed. But when I prayed, I, I, I looked up, there was just this big black wall of impossibility. Maybe it was denial. I think I was in denial that there was a solution. I wasn't in denial that I was sick and, you know, had become a person that never expected to be, didn't want to be, you know, because I said I'd stopped drinking a couple of years before that. And when I said that, I had to take everything underground, right? Because when you set off the alarm bells, yeah. hey, I'm not drinking anymore. When you start drinking again, you know, you had to take it underground. And then, you know, the drug use was underground. And, you know, I, a couple of years before that, I'd gone, you know, what you call it, you know, dry drunk, but I was still using drugs. And it just, it came back, you know, to the point in 2015 where it was just, I was doing everything, anything and everything and lying and stealing and, you know, cheating not really cheating, but, you know, cheating at life, I say, because I'm living a dual, there was duality. There was Scott who was drunk drinker thinking about it. And then there was this outwardly facing Scott that I tried to make sure everything looked like it was okay. And that is a lot of work to do. I mean, that really just wore me down. Yeah, it was exhausting. When I finally decided to get sober, there was this weight that was lifted off my, my shoulders and my wife's. You know, because she didn't want to leave, but she was making plans and she wasn't making plans to leave. She was making plans her life without me. It had gotten that bad that she felt like I was going to, you know, she was going to come up on me and I wasn't going to be breathing. You know, Mm. you know, you know, the obsession to drink was lifted, but it was only through just rigorous honesty and did the 90 meetings in 90 days. And I was really proud of that. And I went to my sponsor and I said, hey, I did my 90 and 90. He said, okay, great. Now it's 365 and 365. (laughs) (laughs) How long do I have to go to a meeting every day until you want to go to a meeting every day? (laughs) I heard that recently. How long do you have to go and tell you you want to? Yeah, that's right. Hey, folks, just a reminder that we'd love for you to call in with your Ask the Old Timer questions and recovery-related jokes. That number is 212-870-3418. That's 212-870-3418. Also, if you use hashtag heard in a meeting on social media, we may wind up reading your post on the show anonymously, of course. You can always write us at podcast at aagrapevine.org with comments, suggestions, and such. All this and more is also available at aagrapevine.org slash podcast. I don't know if you were joking or not, but you said you were spiritual before you got sober even. Did you have some idea of a higher power before you got sober? 
but it wasn't working for you. How did that tie into this? So I, I the reason I, I say that is because it, it was really just being fake. Like I, I you know, I was raised Catholic and then, you know, I, I had a lot of family members that, you know, had found Christianity. And, you know, since I went to Sunday school and did all these things that I thought I was Mr. Christian. And the reason I jest is because I had no idea what faith was until I actually had it. And it came in a series of sort of these you know, miniature spiritual experiences. And then, you know, a couple very large, just you talk about sort of the white light experiences. And and I was one that had a a series of those. Once you have that, you look back and say, I had nothing before, right? I I, I was trying to live, you know, according to some guidelines and trying to pretend that I had faith, you know, the faith that works in every condition. And, you know, I feel like I have that now and just comparing what I have now to what I had before is like, you know, apples and oranges. Yeah. It amused me. You're talking about teaching Sunday school, drinking and being part of the church and all. I did that. And I remember one Sunday morning, I was, I had all these little toddlers. My, my son was five years old at the time. When I quit drinking, he was six. So I was getting towards the end, but I was, had this Sunday school class, all these little kids, five years old, gathered all around me, Mr. Mr. And I was like going, oh, because I'd broken out in a cold sweat of a hangover with waves of nausea and ice cold sweat on my brow. And I'm like going, okay, children, be calm. And I was such a fraud. I was so, I should have been in the emergency room getting some kind of treatment for my alcoholism. But instead, here I am teaching Sunday school. Mm. Yeah. You know, you talk about that duality. It's, uh, you know, that and you talk about how exhausting it was. I think a lot about it's it's probably thinking, thinking, but about if I had continued on the path I was on, where would I be today? My wife, uh, and I love her to death, she has these small little things she said to me that just stick with me. One of them was, you know, because I said, you know, I'd probably be dead. And she said, well, I don't know if you'd be dead, but things would be a lot different. I don't want them different. And, you know, she said recently, well, you're living your life now, you know. And then the other night she said, you know, I've seen you at your bottom and I never want to see you like that again. That's when I get these little three or two five words that she says means everything to my sobriety and it, my gratitude in, in action of just being part of a family and a fellowship. We talked this morning, our meeting, you know, I led on friendship and the friends that I used to have to the friends that I have in the program today, knowing what it's like to be a friend and meeting somebody halfway, as well as being able to have people that you're not just having these surface level conversations with. It's deep, it's spiritual, it's recovery based. Uh, it's not, hey, how you doing? Pass me another drink. Yeah, deep and meaningful friendships are a huge part of my recovery now. And when I look at my friend circle today, almost every one of my friends is in recovery. We're on a similar path and it just makes it so easy to relate. There are people in my life who are not in recovery, who don't need it, who seem to have been given that manual for living. Here's the the instruction manual that I didn't get. I didn't get it either. (laughs) So, you know, I I had to learn it in Alcoholics Anonymous, but those non-alcoholic people are rare. So (laughs) 
Yeah, you hear that a lot that everybody needs some kind of program. <laughs> Humans Anonymous. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you, those people that we talk to that, that don't get it, we, we have to ask ourselves and, and understand that they don't have a program. Scott, what is one of those steps, those 12 steps that seemed like a crazy thing to do, too much to ask, and once you did it, it had an experience that changed your mind about how it works? Yeah, for me, it was the ninth step. Made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. When I got sober, I wanted to do that day one of my sobriety. Like I wanted to go shout at the rooftops and tell everyone how far I was. And then I was sober. Luckily, my sponsor was like, well, they've got the steps in order for a reason. So let's let's work them that way. But I got to step nine and I found myself unwilling to make those amends. And unwilling in the, what call it nerves and anxiety. Fear. Fear, right? Something that seemed like the first thing I wanted to do when I got there was that that amends. And it wasn't an easy process. It wasn't like this comforting. And a lot of them weren't these sort of watershed moments that I was expecting where we, we hug it out. You know, some of them were downright awkward. Mm. And some were, oh, well, you did nothing wrong and a, and a misunderstanding. And some were people that did not want to see me get sober because we'd done a lot of, um, you know, ripping and running together. Mm-hmm. To them, it was a, you know, it was a loss. And, and did you lose those friends? Some I did. Some, you know, I could tell there was some resentments of me not being able to do that. He actually invited me to Vegas to relive his bachelor party recently. And uh, you can tell there's just a, la- a lack of understanding there. I found that it was like the friends that I had where it was really based on drinking. Those are the ones that fell away. But if there was something else, it was surprising, too which of my friends were, it wasn't all based on drinking. Mm-hmm. I think it was those that maybe had a similar affliction, didn't want to look in the mirror. Mm-hmm. Pretty uncomfortable, right? Threatening. Yeah, threatening. And then those that uh, maybe they didn't have that affliction, but they enjoyed the party, Scott. Like that was the person they'd come to know. Mm-hmm. So what was it in the ninth step that changed for you? What changed for me was that there are different ways to make an amends. I thought everything was an apology when I first started, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I think what, what helped was working steps with two different sponsors, just finding out that sometimes you showing somebody that you don't live that way anymore, or, you know, somebody that had passed on that I had wronged, or people that, you know, it would do more harm than good to do an amends. There were different ways for me to uh, both forgive myself and see forgiveness, whether that's a letter I don't send whether that's a prayer um, in a place that I've known this person that passed. And then it, it was those, not those concentric circles of, hey, I did my family. And a lot of them are living amends, you know, because I'm still very close to them. And then as we got out, there were different ways I could make amends. Everyone wasn't, I had to go sit down face to face and bear my soul. And then uh, I was also told it's never missed an opportunity to make an amends. Mm. Yeah. You'll find in, you know, you'll find people that you had heard that weren't on your list, but you did. And you remember that. And I've done that too. somebody I was did a horrible thing to at work. It was a, you know, not a personal thing, but, you know, it was just pride and ego. I sent her a message on LinkedIn and uh, she offered me a job. So I figured that one went okay. <laughs> if you get a job out of an amends, right. that's a successful amend. Right. I think that's the dream amends. It was, it was, it was a good one. And then in the process of doing the ninth step, I mean, I just pay attention to my thinking and my behavior now. 
hopefully, sometimes I'm actually able to catch myself before I start blasting somebody for their behavior that I don't like, you know, that I'm judging, and instead don't end up having to make an amends. And one of the things that I love is a distinction that was given to me about the difference between apologies and amends. An apology is, I'm sorry that I just mouthed off at you. Uh, Whereas if I caused harm, then I need to make amends. And there's some work that I need to do to clean Mm -hmm. that up as well. So, you know, an amends, I I think in many ways is the apology plus the cleaning up. That's, That's a great way to think about it. You know, there's some restitution with amends. You know, I found that those that I owed the most were there were there's actually three women, my wife, my mother and my sister. There were three different ways I had to make amends to them, living amends to my wife. And, and that's a daily thing uh, for my mom. It was we were codependent on each other. Right. So I had to actually break that codependency uh, as an amends to her and, you know, to, to set boundaries, which I had no idea what, what, what boundaries were when I wasn't sober. And then my sister was just being there for her when she really needed me. Mm. I, not only had I mistreated her, there was some, you know, kind of abandoning of my older brotherly duties during that process. So she's had some tough times since then. And I've been able to be there for her. while I work on my amends, I have to work on one of my biggest character defects, which is listening. It is like, I'm just, I'm not a great listener. I'm always waiting for my time to talk. I, I'm always in conversations where the best thing I can do for somebody is just listen to them. Uh, I'm sorry. I wasn't listening. I was listening <laughs> about what I'm going to say next. Exactly. I was wondering if it was going to be you or me that was going to say yeah. that. That's a good, I like that. So. Well, Scott, I've been paying close attention. I appreciate you talking to us today. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Last from the past. I must tell you the story of a group who went in for combined research, education, rehabilitation, and doing good. It was the Charleston, West Virginia group. They wouldn't mind because somebody down there has a very divine sense of humor. And uh, they rode up to the office and said they were setting up one of these all-purpose foundations and they had to go inside and they were going to get themselves a big building and they were going to have in it a club and a hospital and a rehabilitation center and they were going to educate and they were going to research and they were really going to take in the waterfront. What did we think about? Well, of course, there in New York, we walk on a tightrope, you know, and so we wrote back and said, well, it isn't in line with the majority experience. And once upon a time, we used to think we should do these things here, but now we think we know better. And that's up to you, however. You make up their mind, your mind. So they made up their minds and wrote back and said, well, things were really different down in Virginia, and uh, they had concluded they would set up the all-purpose foundation, cover the entire problem. And they got together some money. And they got them a building, and they got all these activities all going right in the same building. They also, just to be sure that it would work, sent up their charter and wanted me to uh, put a seal on it. In other words, they wanted kind of an imprimatur, and I, well, I backed off on that. Well, by and by, we began to get very distressed mail from Charleston. It seems that a great number of factions had arisen there. And, uh... 
It wound up in a frightful death. Awful mess. All they had terrible times on. Well, out of it came a very great piece of wisdom. The fellow who had initiated all this, the inspired leader, had a sense of humor that was unusual even in AA. You know we drunks have a wonderful sense of humor, but it's always about somebody else. But this guy got some humor about himself. So he, he gets a card about this size, he folds it once, and he slips it in an envelope, and on it he had printed a few little sentences. You take the card out of the envelope, and he, and he mailed one to every AA group in America. And it says on the outside of the card, Charleston AA group, rule number 62. The implication being that they had 61 other rules. But this was rule 62. So wondering what rule 62 meant, you open the card and written straight across it with one sentence. Don't take yourself so damn seriously. <laughs> And that was the end of the All-Purpose Foundation, and now they're back on straight AA. So very clearly, I think we all see that each Alcoholics Anonymous group ought to be a spiritual entity, having but one primary purpose, that of carrying its message to the alcoholic who still suffers. How much would you spend on a good bottle of wine? Hmm. Let's say about 10 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) It's really not that funny. Thanks for joining us. The AA Grapevine Half Hour Variety Hour is posted every Monday and is produced by AA Grapevine, Inc. We don't speak for AA as a whole. We share the experience, strength, and hope of members to help others recover from alcoholism. Podcast info, including how to call in, is at aagrapevine.org slash podcast. Find AA Grapevine on Instagram and the AA Grapevine channel on YouTube. All things Grapevine are available at aagrapevine.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous and your city or visit aa.org.